My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. massive resource extraction happening in Alberta, Northwest Territories, and the people on the land were feeling it. We were seeing it. We were seeing the changes to the land, the increase in traffic, you know, the people coming to the land, the animal populations declining, the confusion in the animals, the changes in the food, the berries and the medicines. So that's what triggered our need to act and to do something. That's the voice of Jesse Cardinal, today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Jesse Cardinal is a Métis woman who grew up in a Métis settlement in Alberta. Her upbringing was very land-based, from what her family ate, to how they lived, to the values they instilled in her. Today, she lives in Treaty 6 territory, and is the executive director of an organization called Keepers of the Water. Keepers of the Water is an indigenous-led organization founded in 2006, with a mission of protecting the water in the Arctic drainage basin. That covers a truly massive expanse of land, spanning parts of all three territories, as well as perhaps half of Alberta, and northern areas in British Columbia and Saskatchewan. The most significant threats to the watersheds in this territory involve resource extraction. That takes many forms, and certainly includes the many different kinds of mining scattered across the north, but the single largest threat is the resource extraction taking place in the context of the Alberta tar sands. The majority of the tar sands are located in areas that drain into the Athabasca and Peace Rivers, which flow through the Slave River and Great Slave Lake, into the Mackenzie River, which is also called the Decho by the Dene people, and ultimately the Arctic Ocean. The drainage system that flows through the Decho is the longest in Canada, and it's the second largest drainage basin in North America after the Mississippi. Because of the threat posed by the tar sands and by other resource extraction in this territory, it is this part of the overall Arctic drainage basin that's been the greatest focus for keepers of the water. Back in 2006, the boom and bust cycles inherent to extraction-based economies were in a boom phase in Alberta and the Northwest Territories. People who live in land-based ways on these territories were seeing things like declines in animal populations, changed and confused animal behaviors, and changes in berries, medicines, and other plants as well. Of particular significance was the reduced water level of the Athabasca River related to the diversions of water by the tar sands industry. Indigenous communities downstream on the Athabasca depend on it for transportation, and the levels were low enough that their ability to get where they needed to go during the fall hunting and harvesting season were significantly impacted. In response to all of these concerns, an initiative led by Dene people in 2006 brought together elders and community members from a number of northern peoples to discuss them. They ended up issuing what's become known as the Keepers of the Water Declaration, which was the start of a process involving a series of meetings and conversations that ultimately resulted in the founding of Keepers of the Water. According to Cardinal, there was an initial impulse to avoid creating a formal organization. But those guiding the process eventually decided that it was a necessary compromise to be able to bring to bear the right kinds of resources to do the kinds of consistent work that the situation requires. And that work has spanned a broad range over the years. 
Raising awareness of the environmental impacts of the tar sands has been an important element of that work all along. The organization was, for instance, centrally involved in the tar sands healing walks that took place several times in the early 2010s. Today, a key priority for them is stopping the proposal to dump the contents of tar sands tailing ponds into the Athabasca River. Companies claim the tailings will be treated, but Cardinal said, quote, even when treated, they're still toxic. They are not safe to be anywhere near the Athabasca River, end quote. Keepers of the Water also organizes regular educational events, gatherings, and conferences. Their recent work includes attention to food security, which is tightly bound up with questions of water quality and quantity, and they've put considerable effort into exploring alternative economies. They've been pushing for indigenous involvement in the Canada Water Agency, proposed by the federal government in late 2020. And their longer-term goals include following examples from other parts of the world to get legal recognition of personhood for the decho from the settler legal system. I speak with Cardinal about the work of Keepers of the Water. I'm Jesse Cardinal. I am currently serving as the Executive Director for Keepers of the Water. Keepers of the Water is an Indigenous-led organization. It was formed in 2006 in the Mackenzie Basin in Northwest Territories. And at that time, there was a lot of concerns about the quality of the water and the quantity of the water due to extreme industrial extraction. When Keepers of the Water was formed, there was the Dene people up north that got together with other people at the time to create a declaration. In summary, what the declaration states is that water is sacred and that we must work to protect it. And so our mission is to protect the Arctic watershed, which if anyone knows, the Arctic watershed is massive. So we focus on some of the areas of the Arctic watershed, but we definitely reach out as broadly as we can. How did you become someone likely to be involved in this kind of grassroots community work? I'm a Métis woman, Nehiao Esquio, in the early 1900s. The colonizers were stealing lands and resources and forcibly removing First Nation people onto reserves and violently imposing all of these laws on Indigenous people. And so as Métis people, we were definitely closely tied to First Nation people. We weren't white. We never fit into the white society. And so when they were making the First Nations, they said, you can't live on the First Nations because you're not First Nation, but we weren't allowed in these white communities and nor did we fit into them. And so as we were being pushed more out west from, you know, Manitoba to Saskatchewan and into Alberta, we were not having anywhere to live. And so leaders got together, both First Nation and Métis leaders, they were men, but what people don't know, like these five men that fought for our land as Métis people, it was their wives that were also a part of it. So as a woman, I always acknowledge the women that were a part of fighting for our rights. You know, the wives make a lot of decisions and the women in the community and then the men go out and do what they need to do. So they fought for our eight Métis settlements and they're all in Alberta. Because we're distinct people, we're very land-based people. You know, we hunt, we fish, we trap, we gather medicines, we gather berries. Our existence and our identity is tied to the land. We're Indigenous. And so we got these Métis settlements in the 1930s, and it was often near the Indigenous communities. And we grew up on the land. So when I was a kid, we didn't have running water. We didn't have, like, gas to heat our home. It was a wood stove. We got our water from a well or from the streams. 
we had this big barrel and we had the water and we had a piece of plywood over the water and then our dipping barrel. Um, We'll never forget the taste of that water. Never. Because it was so cold and clean and fresh tasting. There wasn't any chemicals in it. I've lived that. I know what it tastes like. Maybe that impacted me at that age. My dad provided for us by hunting and fishing. So when I was a kid growing up, that was a lot of our diet. And already colonization was massively happening and technology and things like this. But we were living in the bush. So we were raised in those values of eating from the land and being very land-based. And so that's how I grew up. Because we are land-based, that has given us our identity and our strength. I had so many awesome, amazing mentors growing up, like my chaplain, Stella. She was like an old cookum that wore these skirts and these tights and the cookum scarf. And she was one of my most influential people growing up. And I've had other people like that. A lot of the elders, you know, they grew up speaking the Cree language and just the values that we were taught, you know, of like if somebody comes to your home, you feed them. Tell listeners about the territory that's the focus of Keepers of the Water's work. The Athabasca River starts in the Rocky Mountain span in what people would know as BC and Alberta. So it stretches all the way from the south all the way north into the Northwest Territories, the mountains go. And from the mountains, there's fresh water streams that come from underground and they're called the headwaters. They're pristine, they're clean, fresh water. And those headwaters feed into rivers, major rivers that give life to millions of people and animals and everything else. And so the headwaters flow into the Athabasca River. And the Athabasca River, if you're thinking on a map, they flow north. And so the Athabasca River flows and there's other rivers that join up to this major river, the Slave River, the Peace River, the Athabasca River, and then they all join into one river called the Mackenzie River. That's another issue too. The Mackenzie River, we're working to change that as keepers of the water because it was some white guy who was on a boat traveling down the Mackenzie and said, this is my river or something. And they erased the entire existence of Indigenous peoples on those lands. That river already had a name called the Decho in Dene. And then there's other languages up there and they have the name for the river. So the Decho means the fast flowing river or the mighty river. And so all of these rivers flow into the Decho and then the Decho flows into the Arctic Ocean. And so when you start at the headwaters, it's mountain, it already starts with the boreal forest. And then the boreal forest continues until you start to get into Northwest Territories and it's more tundra. So you have more rock and you have pine trees and you have a lot of muskeg and wetland in Northwest Territories. All in the boreal forest, there's all muskeg and wetland and trees and creeks and rivers and streams. There's very diverse ecosystems because there's all kinds of trees. There's all kinds of animals and bugs and plants and birds. So when the birds migrate back and forth, this is their summer home. And millions and millions of birds migrate back and forth every year. So what's happening with that, though, is, you know, because of colonization and that extractive industrial complex of, you know, viewing everything as something to be extracted and as a resource, is that all of this 
landscape where ecosystems are rapidly being impacted and destroyed. The wetlands are being cleared like complete wetlands. They'll go and drain wetlands and clear the land out. And man, if people only knew how important wetlands were to the entire planet, they wouldn't be doing that today. There's a lot of logging up here, clear cutting. So clear cutting is if you have like a square mile of land, they clear everything. They take everything out. That's clear cutting. And forest companies will say, well, we don't clear cut, but they do. A lot of them do. Then once clear cutting happens, you can't replicate the environment. Some things are meant to be left alone and kept in the state that they're in. Some people may have heard that Indigenous people, we have 20% of the lands in the world and 80% of the world's biodiversity exists in those small areas of land. Because of our worldview, like we don't view things as something to extract or to develop or to change because we understand that we live in harmony with everything. So our law is called natural law is that we are no more above than the tree or the frog or the fox. Like this is all of our home. So we're very mindful of that. How did Keepers of the Water get its start? So in 2006, Alberta was what they called in a boom. So if anyone knows the boom-bust cycle, when a boom happens, there's a lot of resource extraction. Everybody has a job. Everybody has money. But that doesn't last and it's not sustainable. And so then the bust happens for whatever reason, probably because Mother Earth takes a breath and needs a break. And then oil prices drop and people get laid off. So in 2006, there was this boom happening and there was massive resource extraction happening in Alberta, Northwest Territories, and the people on the land were feeling it. We were seeing it. We were seeing the changes to the land, the increase in traffic, you know, the people coming to the land, the animal population declining, the confusion in the animal because so many more roads were being built and traffic. And so we were seeing all that, the changes in the food, the berries and the medicines. So that's what triggered our need to act and to do something. It's like, this is happening so fast and we need to do something about this because this is not sustainable. With the Athabasca River that drains into the Daycho, the water levels were dropping As the tar sands were growing, they were taking water and they still take water out of the Athabasca River. And as you go more north into Fort Chip and Myth Landing and all of these communities that are Indigenous communities and have colonized names such as Fort Providence and all that, and I'm sure they're going to start reclaiming their names in their own languages, they're completely water and land-based. So Fort Chip is a fly-in only community. There's no road to get to Fort Chip. You either have to go in on boat on summer or you can fly year round. In winter, they have a winter road and always on the water. And so what was happening, because in fall, naturally the water levels are lower. The earth is drinking up all the water and preparing for winter. So in fall, because the companies and the tar sands in Fort McMurray are extracting so much water, the entire river this massive river, the levels of the river were dropping to the point where it was impacting travel on the water. So, you know, people on their boats weren't able to get to places that they go hunting because fall is harvesting season. 
So everyone's on the water in the fall because you're going to different parts of the land to go and harvest food such as moose and caribou and deer and, you know, whatever else and all the medicines because we do our harvesting through summer and into fall for medicines because you use those medicines throughout winter to keep you healthy until the next harvesting season. So that's what brought people together. And there was non-Indigenous people. A lot of non-Indigenous people are on the land as well or very connected to the land and have built their own connections to the water and to the lands. And there's a lot of good non-Indigenous people that have been brought here through their ancestors and haven't been the ones that inflicted violence on Indigenous people and are working really hard to correct that. And so we work with both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, and this group of people came together to make this declaration to say we need to do something to protect the water. We need to be a voice for the water, you know, because the water, it's speaking for itself to say, like, it's getting sick, but we need to be the voice to talk to these companies, to talk to the governments, to say, like, we need to protect this water, and what's happening is not sustainable, and it's harming the water. How did that initial declaration turn into an organization? In order to do work, in order to be consistent in our voice of, you know, raising awareness for the water, you need to have dedicated people. And for a long time, we weren't even registered colonially. Part of it was people didn't want to because we don't need to be registered under the colonial constructs to exist. And so that was the thinking for a long time. But what we started to see is that if we want to have staff in place to help organize and coordinate some of our efforts, we need to register colonially and be in that process. But that's not how we think necessarily all the time. So that's where we started doing some of that work as well to bring in staff and to communicate with people. The main thing is to be able to communicate with people. So I know that Keepers of the Water does far more than we can talk about in any detail today, but give listeners a sense of some of the kinds of things that the organization does. We're a diverse organization, so we do all kinds of work. We're working to stop the federal government from creating regulations that will allow the dumping of the tailings ponds into the Athabasca River. The tailings ponds are toxic. Even when treated, they're still toxic. They are not safe to be anywhere near the Athabasca River. So that's some of the work that we're doing. We co-host a medicine and water gathering every year. We've been doing that with a Creek community in Saskatchewan, and we bring in different people to give teachings on water and ceremony and just part of our work in decolonization because a big part of our work is decolonization and you know embracing language and culture. We're launching a community monitoring program, so we're going to be monitoring lakes and rivers. We have a website, keepersofthewater.ca, so you can follow our website. We also have a Facebook page, Keepers of the Water. Another part that ties into our work in the Arctic watershed is pursuing personhood for the Daycho. So as I mentioned, Indigenous people know the Mackenzie River as the Daycho. And something that's evolving internationally is there's different parts in the world where communities or groups are looking at pursuing personhood for rivers. We have a research report. We've done some preliminary research and we have the research report up on our website and you can have a look at that. 
go into a bit more detail about Keepers of the Waters' work with respect to the Tar Sands, and most recently about your work against the threat posed by the proposal to release the tailings ponds into the Athabasca River. Keepers of the Water has been actively working to raise awareness of the environmental impacts from the tar sands since the beginning of our existence in 2006. And even before then, the people that are part of Keepers have been in these communities feeling these impacts even before 2006. It's one of the largest industrial projects on the planet. And we've seen that on the community grassroots level, how massive it was and how destructive it was. Like The air quality was being impacted, the waters being impacted, wetlands being completely destroyed. And so just all of this knowledge that we have as grassroots community people that we were seeing the changes that were happening to the land. As Indigenous people, we've been criminalized since our existence colonizers came here with their laws. We weren't even listed as human with the doctrine of discovery, which allowed them to take the lands and resources. We weren't human, we were savages. And that legacy has carried on to today where we were criminalized for everything that we do just for existence. That's how residential schools were operated. Indigenous people were forced to send their children. If they didn't, they were criminalized. They were thrown in jail. Our ancestors couldn't even practice their ceremonies. They couldn't even pray. And if they did, they were a criminal and they were put in jail. That has been our existence since colonization. And so now we bring it back to today's time where we're trying to protect the animals and the water and all of these things that everyone depends on. We're criminalized again. And so as we started speaking out about these concerns that we had for the land and the water, the governments were quick to respond to say, these are radicals, these are, you know, dangerous people. And we weren't even like, we would have rallies and these are peaceful rallies. Like we're not carrying weapons or we're not even swearing or anything like that. Like we're just praying actually. And the government would call us these activists and the media would join in on that and really just trying to criminalize us and make us look bad in the public view because we were calling them out for what they were doing. We were calling out the governments and the companies to say, what you're doing is wrong. You need to stop it. And so as we started going to these meetings, it's heavy stuff because you're carrying this because you live on these lands, you know, so you're going into these meetings, trying to talk to industry and government, and it's like talking two different languages and it's tiring. And I'm like, hey, we can't only do this. We know we don't want the tar sands to grow. We don't want our water polluted. But what else are we doing here? And that's when we started talking about the solutions. So yeah, people like to have heat in their homes and vehicles to drive, but this is something bigger than that because this isn't meeting the basic needs. This is meeting the company's greed. These companies are deceiving people to make them think that they need to continually keep extracting at an unsustainable rate to have heat in your home. That's a lie. They're extracting because they want to own islands and they want to own yachts and they want to like have all this greed and control and it has nothing to do with the community people. So we need to let people know that there's other solutions that don't involve massive industrial extraction. And so that's what we spent a lot of time on in 2009, 2010, 11, 12. You know, what does a green economy look like? What does an alternative economy look like? We looked at solar energy. We looked at wind energy, geothermal energy. And what we're finding is that there is no sustainable future without land-based practices. There needs to be balance. 
There's no switching from one massive industry to another massive industry. In order for us to survive, we need to change. Keepers is one of the organizations that highlights that and that voices that. Indigenous people have these answers. They have these solutions. They're still living on the land. They're still living the way we were intended to live. We've partnered with other people, other organizations, exploring what does this alternative economy look like? The other thing is hope. As Indigenous people, we have endured genocide. We have endured colonization. And there's hope in that. And when we come together from different backgrounds, all these walks of life in a beautiful way, it's so healing. And so that's part of our work is bringing hope. It's tied to the land. It's tied to the water. It's tied to songs and ceremonies. And so we started having the Tarzan healing walk. These women came together, Cleo Reese, Ariel Durange, and a lot of other grassroots people through all of this is like, we need to pray and we need to heal. And so they started the healing walk, which goes right in the heart of the Tar Sands and Fort McMurray. By the time the last walk happened in 2014, there was people from all over the world coming. Right now with the Alberta and federal government trying to dump what they call treated tailings into the Athabasca River, that is an international human rights crime. If it's allowed to happen there, it will, without a doubt, be allowed to happen in other places eventually. And so we're drawing a hard line to say, no, this is not okay, and you are not going to dump poison into our water. And if we are able to stop that from happening then you can rest assured in your home, in your community, that atrocities aren't going to happen like that in your community. If the federal government is allowed to do it in what's called Alberta, they're going to be able to do it in Ontario. I'd love to hear more about the shape that that struggle is taking today, but we're running short of time. So why don't you let listeners from other parts of the country know what they can do to support the work of your organization and the work of grassroots communities that are protecting the water in the North? You can donate to our organization, which helps us keep the staff on to do the work that we need to do and follow our website and our Facebook page so that you're informed because, you know, a lot of our work doesn't always make it to the six o'clock news. And just understand that even though a lot of your audience lives in cities and are very far removed from the North, that what we do is protecting the planet. We're helping to set standards of what's acceptable and not acceptable, for example, when it comes to water. And just understand that we're very different, but we're all connected. And so just to understand that we're fulfilling our responsibilities in protecting the planet and that we care about not only ourselves, but we care about other people. We care about the wildlife. So what I would say is, you know, take your own time to go connect to the land and the water and learn about the Indigenous people and their history, because that history is so rich in knowledge and stories and love. We want to be able to continue living our land-based life. We want our land. And when we say land back, we're not trying to kick everybody off and, you know, send them away. It's like, we only have 2% of all of the land in Canada, and we're helping protect the entire planet. And in order for us to do that, we need more land back. You have been listening to my interview with Jesse Cardinal, the Executive Director of Keepers of the Water. To learn more about the organization, go to keepersofthewater.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.